Everybody turn to Matthew chapter 19. So coming through the gospel of Matthew together, today we're at chapter 19, verse 1 through 12, verses 1 through 12. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, thank you so much for your word and for allowing us to come and read it together and meditate together on the truth. And I just pray, God, that you would move in power and you would affect our hearts, that you would stir us up to love and good works, Lord, that you would fill us with humble and submissive hearts to tremble at your word. God, I pray that you would be with us this morning. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I want us to read this passage and really fight to try to just understand the plain sense of what's here and just enjoy the text, you know. You see these things about Jesus and his interaction with Pharisees, his interaction with his disciples, and just enjoy what's here. So let's try to see that. Let me read it. We're going to read verse 1 through 12. And then we'll try to dig into the plain meaning of it. Verse 1. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him. And he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual morality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. He said to them that everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been, been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Right, you really can take this passage into three parts, and that's the way we'll try to look at it. Number one is the journey towards Jerusalem. Uh, That's in verses 1 and 2. Number 2, the Pharisees questioning Jesus. That's verses 3 through 9. And in that section, you've got two questions. The Pharisees ask two questions, uh, a question to test him and then a follow-up question, and Jesus gives them two answers. And then number 3, you see the disciples weigh in in verse 10 through 12. So they kind of hear all this going on between Jesus and the Pharisees. And they weigh in with a comment, and Jesus kind of responds to their, or he responds to their comment. So that's the three parts. We'll try to take it in those three parts. So number one, the journey towards Jerusalem, verse 1 and 2. Look at it again. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he, he 
just finished uh, some teaching that we just came out of in the Gospel of Matthew. He went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. So here we see him leaving Galilee, where most of his ministry and teaching had been done. And he's headed towards Judea and eventually to Jerusalem. This journey is going to end. This journey is going to end with Christ crucified just outside of Jerusalem. He won't return again to, to Galilee until after his resurrection. This is a reminder for us, and I want to encourage you to be reminded about this, that this gospel and the gospel of Matthew and really all four gospels, they're not mainly here just to give you an example of Jesus' life to follow. Now, you should look at Jesus' life, and we should follow it. We should follow his example. But the gospels have this real cross movement everything's moving towards the cross everything's moving towards jerusalem it's not just a simple biography to say hey live like this that wouldn't be enough for us because we could be given very clear laws and we can be given a very clear example to follow but because of our own sinfulness we will reject it we'll sin against god and we won't even be able to follow his example so the gospels aren't mainly hey here's an example to follow the gospels have a cross focus because our greatest need is not clarity about what's right. Our greatest need is not an example to follow. Our greatest need is the forgiveness of sins, which can only be found at the cross. And so what you see here in these two verses is, man, this movement towards the cross that all the gospels have because we need forgiveness and Jesus died in our place. Now, he gives us a little bit of a preview of that. Because these crowds, you notice in the first two verses it says you have these crowds. And what's he doing? What's he doing to these crowds? He's healing them. He's just, just healing them in, in love and mercy and grace. He's healing these crowds. You know what these crowds are going to do later? Like a dog, they're going to turn on him. So the very crowds are going to turn on him. Not, not, uh, not very long down the road. He's healing them in love. A little preview of the grace that Jesus shows at the cross when he dies for sinners that don't deserve it. That's the journey towards Jerusalem. Now, second, we see the Pharisees questioning Jesus. This is in verse 3 through 9, and we'll spend a little more time here. We see the Pharisees questioning Jesus. Now, question number one is in verse 3. And Pharisees... That's who's doing the questioning. Came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Now this is a deceitful question. This is not a sincere question. They're not just desiring a little bit of knowledge that they don't have. They're testing him. This isn't the good testing like the Bereans testing to see if something's true from the scriptures. They've already got their mind made up about Jesus and they're trying to catch him in his words, catch him in a trap, do something to discredit him. And so this is a deceitful question, not a sincere question. Now, this question that they ask, it's not about the general uh, lawfulness of divorce in some cases. Okay, they would just assume that. They would assume that generally... Uh, divorce can be lawful in some cases. In fact, Jesus would agree to that, as we're going to see in verse 9, that there are uh, there's some situations where a divorce would be lawful. And this is, this is uh, something they would assume, something that Jesus would go on to teach in verse 9. So it's not a question about the general lawfulness of divorce in some situations, but rather this is a question about the proper grounds for divorce. The proper grounds. What makes proper grounds for a divorce to be considered lawful? And you see that because look at, look at the phrase here. It says, for any cause. For any cause. You see that? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? For any cause that he, you know, that he just happens to come across or whatever he pleases? Listen to the way some of the other versions say it. The NIV says... For any and every reason? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Like, can the grounds of a lawful divorce be that broad? It's just any reason that he chooses. The King James Version says, for every cause. 
The NAS says, for, for any reason at all, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Now, that was the popular opinion of the day. A man should be able to divorce his wife for whatever reason he chooses. That was the popular opinion when this was going on. Now, here, now here's what's interesting. They, the, divorce wasn't necessarily rampant in that culture as it is in ours. So, so this would be very, very applicable to us, right? Like the popular opinion of the day, a man should better divorce his wife for any reason that he chooses, is also the popular opinion today, but double. Not just a man, but a wife ought to be able to divorce her husband for any reason she chooses. And not only that, but we want to believe it in this culture, but we even act on it more than they did. So very applicable to think about the popular opinion of their day. A man ought to be able to divorce his wife for whatever reason that he chooses. Now, Jesus gives an answer in verses 4 through 6. So think about it. you got the question in your mind. Is it, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? And Jesus gives an answer. And I want us to read it and just take time to just uh, admire the answer that Jesus gives. It's beautiful. Verse 4 through 6. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together let not man separate. Beautiful answer. Let me just say a few things about this answer. Jesus gives a sincere answer here. It would have been easy and maybe even appropriate for Jesus just to write them off. This is a deceitful question. They're just trying to test me. Write them off. Don't answer them at all. And yet, and yet Jesus takes this as an opportunity to give them a sincere and kind answer. And he gives it to them. Jesus gives them a Bible answer. Did you notice that? First, he goes back to Genesis 1. Haven't you read that in the beginning God created a male and female? Then he goes to Genesis 2, and, and the man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. That's a quote from Genesis chapter 2. So Jesus gives a Bible answer. I love that, and I think it's something to remember that Jesus was a man of the word, he was a man of the book. He's a man that quoted scripture when he had a question that he needed to answer. So he gives a Bible answer. Also, he gives a foundational answer. So not just anywhere in the Bible, but he goes back to Genesis 1. He goes back to Genesis 2 and he grabs the very foundational things about marriage because that ought to help you think rightly about any other verse in the Bible. Like Deuteronomy 24, we're going to come up to in just a minute. But what you think about Genesis and the very foundations in the scripture, and from Genesis all the way through the scripture, the big picture, he grabs foundational things so that they can understand something about divorce. So he gives a foundational answer here from the book of Genesis. Also, just for clarity's sake, he gives a negative answer. So his answer is no. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his his wife for just any and every cause? And it's, you know, negative. No. That's, that's the answer here. Let what God has joined together, let not man separate. And then he gives a reason for it. And the reason is right here in verse 6. Think about this reason. So, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So why? Why the, why the answer no here? Because he's, he's waking them up to this. Don't you understand? The two people that are married, they're no longer two, but they're one. That's a glorious shift that God has done something so powerful that the two are seen by God as one. And who did that? Who did that? Listen to it. What God has joined together. God did the joining. That's not from man. That's not just from you know, some kind of human act. That's God Almighty. What God has joined together, let not man separate. Man doesn't have the authority to undo what God has joined. And that's, the, and that's the, the reason he gives here. Now we have something similar to that. And I believe Jesus probably had this in mind too. In Malachi chapter 2. 
Let me just read this. In Malachi 2, verse 14, it says, The Lord was witness. So just listen to this. The Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth. You and the wife of your youth. To whom you've been faithless. He goes on to rebuke them for divorcing their wives. You've been faithless divorcing your wives. And then it says, even though she is your companion, that's affections, and she's your wife by covenant. A covenant was entered into. Um, you know, you go to a wedding and you see those vows exchanged, those promises exchanged, that covenant being entered into. And she's, how does she become your wife? She's your wife by covenant, that you made this covenant, these vows with one another, and God moved in power and made two one. And that's what it goes on to say. She's your wife by covenant. Did, did he not make them one? Did he, God, not make them one? And he goes on to rebuke them for divorce and say, the Lord God of Israel hates divorce. So this is, this is a, these are reasons that, because he understands the very foundation of marriage from the Bible. Reasons Jesus is giving for this negative answer. No, a man cannot lawfully divorce his wife for just any reason. Now, second, the second question comes right after that, and it's in verse 7. So listen to their second question. Verse 7. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? So think about that. We're talking about us. Why did Moses command for a certificate of divorce, whatever that is, to be given? And why did he command to send her away? So that's their question. And again, this is not a sincere question. This is an objection. This is, uh, they don't like Jesus' position on marriage and divorce. And so they grab something from Deuteronomy 24, which I'll read to you in just a minute. They grab something about the certificate of divorce from Deuteronomy 24, verse 1 through 4. And, and they say, but what about that? What about this verse? So they're objecting to what Jesus has just taught. Now, this objection... From the Pharisees, and especially the way they're dealing with Deuteronomy 24, verse, verse 1 through 4, it reveals some very serious insufficiencies in the way they deal with the Bible. And I want you to hear that. The Pharisees had some deep insufficiencies in the way they dealt with the Bible, and that's saying it lightly. And, and this, this objection here reveals some of that. And just to help you get a feel for that, I want, to, I want to read Deuteronomy 24. So think about what they said and just listen to the reading of Deuteronomy 24, verse 1 through 4. Okay, What they said is, why then did Moses command them to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? They're referring to this. Listen to this passage. Deuteronomy 24. It's in God's law. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes, because he's found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. You catching the scenario he's giving you right now? She departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then, so got a lot of ifs, then, her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife. That's the command here. May not take her again to be his wife. So I want you to think about this for just a second. They are thinking about that passage of Scripture. And what they say to Jesus is, what about when Moses commanded for a certificate of divorce to be given and to send her away? What about that? And what's being revealed is that they're missing some stuff in the way they deal with the Bible. They're missing two major things. I want you to think about it. They're missing the big picture of the Bible, number one. And they're missing the small details. They're missing both the big picture and they're missing the small details. And, and to get you to see this, just think about this for a minute. When Jesus is asked the question about divorce, what does he do? 
Boom, Genesis 1. Boom, Genesis 2. Thinking about Malachi, Genesis to Malachi. This big picture of the foundational verses and the whole counsel of God informs the way he thinks about Deuteronomy 24. And they're missing that. And twice in this passage of scripture, Jesus says to them, from the beginning. Don't you remember from the beginning? He created a male and female. Or or the next answer. Don't don't you know that um, uh, from the beginning it was not so. So they're missing the big picture of God's word to help them understand a certain verse or a certain passage. So that's a huge mistake they're making. But they're also missing the small details of God's word. Did you notice what they said about a command? They said, why then did Moses command a certificate of divorce to be given and to send her away? Now, go back and read Deuteronomy 24. Did you find a command there that said that? And the answer is no. There is no command there. There's this scenario being presented where a certificate of divorce is given and when that's given and she's sent away, the command is that she can't return to him. And he can't demand that she return to him down the road. But there's no command there to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away. So they're missing the big picture and they're missing the small details of God's word. And so we see that in Jesus' answer. So look at Jesus' answer to their objection, their their second question. It's in verse 8 and 9. He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual morality and marries another commits adultery. That's Jesus' second answer here. Okay, And I want you to try to think about this. Uh, there's, there's There's at least three important things you need to notice from Jesus' answer. At least three important things you need to notice from his answer right here. Number one, in his answer, he deals with their insufficient Bible interpretation. He he deals with it here. Remember, they're missing the small details and they're missing the big picture. And Jesus is going to deal with both of those. He He brings attention to the fact that Deuteronomy 24 does not include a command, but an allowance. Did you see it there? Moses allowed you. They say command. Jesus says Moses allowed you. There was a permission here, but not a command. You're missing the small details. And that's exactly the way you should read Deuteronomy 24. It's an allowance. So in other words, Pharisees, stop missing the small details. Pay attention to every detail of God's word. Every noun, every verb, every sentence, all the punctuation. The, the, you pay attention to it all very, very carefully when you read the word of God. That's what the Pharisees would walk away thinking about. At least one of the things. The allowance of Deuteronomy 24 does not give you God's heart on divorce and it certainly doesn't tell you uh, any kind of command that a man should divorce his wife for any cause now Jesus also brings attention to the fact that they're rejecting the whole counsel of God's word they're missing the big picture and it's causing them to twist up certain passages now we see that twice and Jesus saying but from the beginning he said that in his first answer from the beginning And he said that in his second answer. Yeah, but from the beginning, it was not so. You're missing the big picture, Pharisees. Quit missing the big picture. Don't be guilty of twisting up one scripture just so so you can have it mean something that you want it to mean. Don't be guilty of that. Rightly divide, the New Testament says, rightly dividing the word of truth. That's the call here. Now, Second thing we see in this answer. So in this answer, we see him dealing with their, their uh, false Bible interpretation. But second, in this answer, we see him answering the question of why did Moses give permission or allowance for divorce? If, if Genesis 1 and 2 is true, then why did Moses give permission or allowance for divorce? We see an answer to that here. It's, it, Jesus says, because of the hardness of your hearts. So let that sit. He says, because, what's the reason there was an allowance there for divorce? Because of the hardness of your hearts. Their hearts were hard. 
They were not obeying God as it relates to marriage, as it relates to divorce. And you imagine in their hard-heartedness, imagine the potential situations that could come up where a woman could be severely mistreated because of this whole hard-hearted divorce thing. She's, she's just divorced. Get out of my house. She's let go. Get, you know, get out of here. And at any moment, the man, you know, where's the proof of it? The man can say, come, no, no, that's my wife. Come back. Or let's say she goes to another relationship. He could call foul. He could say, look at her, an adulteress. Adulteress right there, which is the death penalty. And he could say things like that. So this certificate that would be given is this proof, right? So this certificate of divorce and this, this command that she cannot return to him. After she's already gone into another relationship, another, another marriage, that's actually a protection, a merciful protection of this woman in this situation. So she couldn't be called back in or, or claimed to be an adulteress. It's actually a protective thing. It's not an excuse for men to divorce their wives, listen to it, for any cause, for whatever cause he wants. It's not an excuse for that. Now, lastly... In Jesus' answer, we see a severe warning about divorce. A severe warning about divorce. And it's the last verse there in his answer, verse 9. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, accepts sexual morality, and marries another, commits adultery. Now, so with sexual unfaithfulness as an exception, as an exception, Jesus equates divorce and marrying another with adultery in this passage. Man, that's very serious. You're talking Old Testament, under the Old Testament law, death penalty type stuff. Very serious. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another, Jesus says adultery. It's very, very serious. So the Pharisees are asking the question, and they're advocating for the position of, a man can divorce his wife for any cause. Right? And Jesus gives one cause for lawful divorce of sexual unfaithfulness here. That's the cause that he gives. And then he warns that anything else is an adulterous decision. If a man divorces his wife and marries another, that is an adulterous decision you just made. Very, very serious. Very, very weighty. And man, our culture needs to feel the weight of this warning. Now, third section in this passage, we get the disciples kind of weighing in, okay? The disciples weigh in. So you imagine uh, the disciples have been there. They're on this journey towards, uh, towards Jerusalem, towards Judea. And they're hearing this stuff go down. They're hearing Jesus interact with the Pharisees. They heard the first question. They heard the answer. They heard the second question. They heard the answer. And now the disciples are going to weigh in, Okay? We don't know if this happened right in the moment or if it happened in a private conversation later. But either way, verse 10 through 12, they weigh in. And look, look at their comment in verse 10. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Now that's a dumb comment. <laughs> that's, a, that's the kind of thing you accidentally say out loud. Right? Okay, I heard what you're saying, and if that's true, you know, uh, it's better not to marry. Yeah, this sort of, uh, this sort of commitment to mar- marriage is better not to marry. Now, this, this is really is a reminder to us of how, how uh, countercultural Jesus' views on marriage and divorce was in this culture. Man, he was sticking out like a sore thumb. And how do you know that? Because he's arguing with the Pharisees. They hate it. And even his own disciples later say, man, if that's true, then maybe it's... I mean, think about what they're thinking about. But what if she disrespects me? I can divorce her then, right? What if she, what if she argues with me? I can divorce her then. Man, what if I just really lose my desire for her? I don't desire her anymore. You know, I fell out of love. <laughs> I don't know. Whatever their excuses would be or the things that come into their mind... I don't think it's that they were just eager to divorce their wives, but it's just the what if stuff. What if she does this? What if this happens in the marriage? What about this? And, and surely I should have the right to divorce her, right? And Jesus lays down this thing that to, to divorce her and to marry another is adultery. And they say, man, maybe it's better. Maybe it's better uh, not even to marry 
at all. So like I said, it's a dumb comment, but it really shows more than anything that they missed the heart of God on this issue. So here's the disciples of Jesus, and they're missing the heart of Christ, the heart of their, their master, their Messiah, on this subject. And yet, Jesus graciously and kindly still gives them an answer, an answer to their comment. And we see that in verse 11 and verse 12. Look at his answer. He said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Now, the word eunuch here in Jesus' answer is being used symbolically to describe someone who has chosen a life of celibacy. Okay? It's being used symbolically to describe someone who's chosen a life of celibacy. Now, that's really important to understand because there are men in church history who have taken this literally and they were very wrong and it was very consequential. And so, how do we know that eunuch here should be taken symbolically? Two main reasons. One is because the Old Testament actually condemned this mutilation that would make somebody a eunuch. So Jesus wouldn't speak against that. Number two, just think about the context. What they're asking is something about it being better not to marry. They're not saying it would be better to be a eunuch. Well, and then Jesus says the eunuch thing. No, no. They're saying it would be better not to marry. And then Jesus begins to use the language of a eunuch. Okay, so not literally, but eunuch symbolically to be someone who has chosen a life of no marriage, a life of, a life of celibacy here. And so what Jesus is teaching here is that a life of celibacy is for, look at that phrase, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Okay? And it's rare, it's a rare calling, but it's a legitimate calling for some. A life of celibacy is a rare calling, but it's a legitimate calling for some. I say rare because verse 11. Look at verse 11. Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. It's a rare thing. But it's legitimate for some because the very last thing he says is, let those that are able to receive it, receive it. So it's rare, but it's a legitimate thing for some. Those whom God calls into a life of celibacy for the kingdom, they don't just... They don't just will themselves into it. I'm just going to will myself into this. It's, it's talked about here, here as a gift from God. Verse 11. You see that? Those to whom it is given as a gift from God. So the way Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It's a gift. It's something that is given. The examples here, the best examples at least, would be uh, the example of Jesus or example of the Apostle Paul. These are Bible examples of those that have been called to this Life of making themselves a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Okay, that's our passage. I want to talk about five takeaways from this passage. Five takeaways from this passage. Number one, a takeaway concerning marriage. Um, what we see in this passage is that, is that Jesus highly esteems marriage. You see it in verse 4 through 6, right? Um, marriage is God's design. He takes them back to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God made them male and female. In other words, listen up. Male and female, God's idea. Could have been all male. Could have been all female. He could have done this however he wanted to. And yet in God's creation, he decides male and female. And this idea of marriage, God's idea. Right? God didn't look down and go, whoa, look at them getting married. I'll use that as a picture of Christ in the church. He doesn't do that. He actually designs it that way. I'm actually intentionally creating male and female and bringing together the first marriage. He's doing that. It's his design. It's his idea. And it says that in, in verse 4 through 6, Jesus' words, his response, it says that the two, in marriage, the two become one. Man, that's highly esteeming marriage. That's beautiful. That you're not, you're not just two that happen to be living together. You're not just roommates. You're two that in the eyes of God are one. 
You've been made one. It's a beautiful thing. And who did it? God joined them together. God did this miraculous act. She's your wife by covenant. The covenant was made. The vows were exchanged. And boom, God made them one. It's a beautiful thing. And I want to encourage you to highly esteem marriage the way Jesus does. Now, I don't, I, you know, let me get more, more uh, personal. I'm not just asking you to highly esteem marriage in general. You know, esteem the doctrine of marriage. You know, I want you to do that too. But not just that, but I'm saying highly esteem your marriage. You here that are, you here that are married, I want to encourage you and challenge you to highly esteem your marriage. Think about what God has done all over this room. So I'm seeing faces of my brothers and sisters in Christ that so many of you actually heard the vows, actually saw the covenant that was made, and you're sitting there today, and you're not, you're not two, you're one. God has made you one. And, and this beautiful thing that we know from Ephesians 5, that, that, that God has joined them together and they're one, and Ephesians 5 says, this is a profound mystery, and I'm telling you it refers to Christ and the church. So here's this beautiful picture where Christ Jesus came and for a sinful, wretched crew, he dies on a cross for sinners and he purchases a bride to himself. And now you're, if you're in Christ, you're one with Christ. You're one with Christ because Jesus died for you and he's your savior. And now you got this beautiful thing of Christ's love for his bride and the bride's loving submission to her groom and this picture of Christ and the church. And now it's delivered to you. Value your marriage. The moment those vows, that, that covenant was made, the pen went to the paper. You've heard it said this way, I'm sure. The pen went to the paper and a divine picture began to be drawn. Is it, is it a good picture of Christ and the church? Or does it bring... Dishonor to the name of Christ in his church, because this is what it points to. So I want to encourage you not to devalue your marriage, but like Jesus, value it. Don't, don't devalue it by the, uh, not spending any time on it, but value it by putting a lot of time into your marriage, a lot of affections, pushing into this encouragement, this mutual building each other up, this laboring side by side for the faith of the gospel. Your marriage matters in the sight of God. He's the one that took two and made them one. It's a big deal. It's a really big deal. So brothers and sisters, value this one flesh union called marriage. It's kind of a quick side note. It's obviously related, but a quick side note. This is to the fathers in the room. So husbands and fathers in the room. One way you can value your marriage and protect your marriage and the affections that are there and the, and the unity that's there is by having a well-managed home. A well-ordered, well-managed home. And let me explain that really quickly. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4 and 5, it has requirements for a pastor, what he must be. And it's supposed to be an example that this requirement is an example for all men to follow, all husbands and fathers to follow. And it says he must, he must manage his own household well, having his children in submission with all dignity. And one of the ways that time gets ripped out, so, so why do men, or, or you could even say both, why do men and women, why do couples not give time to their marriage? Why? Maybe they're waiting on retirement. Job takes precedent over marriage. Maybe they're waiting on the kids to grow up. Kids take precedent over marriage. There's all kinds of reasons. But here, here's what, this is the thing I'm highlighting here. Here's one thing that happens. Brothers and sisters, wake up to it. Watch out for it, especially fathers. Especially fathers. If you don't have a well-ordered home, and you don't have your children in submission with all reverence, then what is almost always going to happen is you're going to feel like your wife is a stranger while y'all chase kids around all day. Now, I'm not saying, hear me out, I've got five kids of my own. Uh, I'm not saying that, hey, it's easy and you never feel that way at all. But what I am saying is too often it happens where parents don't love their kids enough to discipline them and care for them and, man and manage their home, fathers especially. They're passive in that area. And next thing you know, you look up and it's just you chasing kids all day, never husband and wife. So, you know, I said quick side note, so I better move on. Quick side note is fathers, manage your household well. 
have your children in submission with all reverence as a way to value your marriage, as a way to value your time with your wife. Okay, number two, a takeaway concerning divorce. Um, We just need to feel the weight of what's here. I mean, think about what Jesus has just said about divorce. What God has joined together, let not man separate. If a man divorces his wife and marries another, he commits adultery. Except for sexual unfaithfulness, he commits adultery. This is heavy stuff. I want to encourage you all across the room. Unless it's connected to, to the sexual morality that's mentioned here as an exception, unless it's connected to that, divorce should not even be in your mind. It shouldn't even, brothers and sisters, married folks in the, in the room, it shouldn't even be an option in the back of your mind anywhere. Like I said earlier, Malachi 2, the, the scripture says the Lord God of Israel hates divorce. And man, we ought to hate it too. It really is. Divorce is such a, a, a disruption of that beautiful gospel picture. Think about it. The gospel picture or the gospel itself is not, if you love me, I'll love you. The gospel is not, if you do me right, I'll love you. If you do me right, I'll stick it out. I'll stay here. The gospel is, while we were sinners, Christ Jesus laid down his life and died for us. And a promise in Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you or forsake you. You didn't earn my love. And you're earning something is not why I stick around. The gospel of Christ, he shows his love towards us and that while we were sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Let your marriage, let, let it be a picture of that. Divorce should even be in the back of your mind. Now, again, kind of quickly here, I know divorce can be a sensitive topic and probably everybody in the room has been affected by it in some sort of way. And so let me just say this quickly. If there are any visitors here, now GCC members, they already know this, okay? But if there are any visitors here that you're sitting there and you're hearing it's adultery, uh, the Lord God of Israel hates divorce, and you're hearing that in a way that there's this sort of unhealthy, you feel really small right now in an unhealthy way, just hear me out. There's people, all, there's people in this room, okay? There's brothers and sisters in Christ, members of the church in this room, that have been divorced and that have been through it. And the Lord God, who is gracious and merciful, has redeemed it for the glory of His name. So don't miss that there's a, there's a God that does just that. That when there's a sinful divorce, Christ died for that sin. When there's a horrific situation that's painful, God can redeem that horrific situation it's painful. So if anybody here that needs to hear that about divorce, please hear it. All right, number three, takeaway. A takeaway concerning celibacy. Um, most of you are not called to this. It's rare. Uh, according to what Jesus said here, it's a rare thing. The biblical norm is towards marriage and not celibacy. Uh, but the Lord may call someone here to this life. And if he does, the scripture says, Jesus said, let the one who is able to receive this Receive it. And if you are called to this, let it be, look at the phrase, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. It's a gift of God for a purpose. You don't enter into that life just because there's a disinterest in marriage or there's a bad mindset, an unbiblical mindset about marriage. You don't enter in for that reason, but because God's called you into it for the sake of the kingdom of heaven, for the advancement of his kingdom, for the glory of his name. There's one brother, you know, years ago, and, and most of you know him, he'll probably laugh at me even talk, talking about it. One brother that I thought might have had this gift, you know, years ago, uh, of called to be single for his life, of celibacy. And I remember he got around, he used to say that, and he got around an older man in Christ one time, and we were talking about this, and the older man looked at me and said, no, he's just got an unbiblical view of marriage. And he's right now, he's married with several kids. Uh, so he was right about that. So it's not unbiblical views of marriage that get you there or uninterest in marriage that get you there. It's a calling from God for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Rare but legitimate. All right, number four. A takeaway concerning how we deal with the Bible. I love this phrase. Uh, First thing Jesus says to the Pharisees. So this is about how you deal with the Bible. First thing Jesus says to the Pharisees is what? Have you not read? Now, you imagine that little hammer. Pharisees, they're the, one, you know, they're the ones that know stuff, right? 
And they ask a question, trying to trap Jesus. The first thing Jesus says is, have you not read? Now, this is all over the place. We're not going to read, for time's sake, we're not going to read it. But just in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 12, 3, Matthew 12, 5, Matthew 21, 16, Matthew 21, 42, Matthew 22, 31. Jesus says, have you not read? Have you not read? Have you not read? Have you not read? (laughs) What's the expectation of Jesus? That you would read his word. That you would read the word of God. And that's what he says to them. Have you not read? So I want to encourage you in that. I want to encourage you to strive to see the big picture of God's word. Don't be like the Pharisees missing the big picture. Read it. Genesis to Revelation. Read it repetitively over and over and over again so you see the big picture of God's word. Love and understand biblical theology that chases the the themes of truth in God's word from Genesis all the way to Revelation. Man, don't miss the big picture. Please resist the uh, the, the, uh, fortune cookie study of God's word. You get your your cracked cookie open, you get a little, my little fortune for the day. Resist that. Read God's word. Read it a lot. Read it daily. Don't miss the big picture. But also, now have you not read? Also, I want to encourage you, take, take this away. Strive to see the little details. Don't miss the little details. Don't be like the Pharisees saying, didn't Moses command you? You'll look in the passage and there's no command there. Don't miss the little details. This happens other places in God's word. Uh, Galatians, if you go read Galatians 3.16, in Galatians 3.16, Paul quotes something about, uh, about the seed or the offspring. And then he says, it doesn't say, talking about the scripture, the scripture doesn't say offsprings, plural, but offspring, singular, talking about Christ. You see what he did there? He's so much paying attention to detail that the plural or singular matters to him. And it has a big effect. So I want to encourage you that. Pay attention to the details. Read it and study the Word of God. See the details of God's Word. 1 Timothy 2.15 Study to show yourself approved to God, a worker that doesn't need to be ashamed. But I love this phrase. But rightly divides the Word of truth. I'm going to leave you this verse. Or not leave you. Leave this verse with you. Psalm 119. This is verse 160. Psalm 119, verse 160. You see in this verse the big picture and the small details. You see both here. Listen to it. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Did you catch that? Big picture. The sum of your word is truth. All of it. And every one. Every word, every sentence, every paragraph, every one of your righteous rules endures forever. And I want us to be picture, people that can say that back to God, that some of your word is, is truth and every word, of your, every word is, is righteous and endures. I want us to be able to say that to God and live that out as we care about the big picture of God's word and reading it and the small details as we study it. Be men and women of the word of God. There's really no reason, there's no good excuse for a Christian to neglect the study of scripture. Every man of God must be a man of God's word. Every woman of God must be a woman of God's word. There's no shortcut to sanctification. You need to love and adore the scriptures. Now, last thing I'll say about this passage. Number five um, is concerning sanctification. So a takeaway concerning sanctification. Now, sanctification is just a fancy word for uh, being set apart. Now, set, you know, Christians enter in. Once you become a Christian, you enter this process where you're being set apart from the world, set apart to Christ. Set apart from sin, set apart to God, right? You've been set apart. You've been made holy. Uh, you're, you're being conformed into the likeness of Jesus. You're growing in your faith. That's sanctification. Now, in this passage, we see the minds of Jesus' disciples not aligned with the mind of Christ. Their minds, and listen, sanctification has a lot to do with your mind. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? It has a lot to do with your mind. And their minds are not aligned with their master, with Jesus. 
Okay, And this section of Matthew, we see a lot of that. Just to give you an example, when you read the next verse, chapter 19, verse 13, you realize that their minds are not aligned with Jesus as they think about children. Get those children out of here. Jesus said, no, no, let them come to me. Right? Uh, you'll see it a little bit later in, in, in the same chapter, 1925, where their minds are not aligned with Jesus as they think about uh, rich, rich, riches and rich people and those kind of things. You're going to see it a little bit later in chapter 20. Their minds are not aligned with Jesus as they think about leadership. And he has to change them. Up. To really be a leader means you become a servant to all. You're not thinking about leadership, right? So there's all these topics from marriage and divorce to children to um, on down the line to leadership to money, all of it. That Their minds need to be renewed to think like Jesus. Now, they're getting some things, right? We saw it in chapter 16. Who do, who do you say that I am? You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And he says, man, he says, uh, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. My father in heaven revealed that to you. So they're getting some things, but man, they got to they they grow. Their mind needs to be changed to think like Christ, their savior. And, and I'm mentioning that because of this. Don't underestimate how much you and I are in the same category. Don't underestimate how much your mind, our minds need to be changed to think like Christ. Okay, surely they didn't sit around thinking, man, we just just don't think like Christ. No, they didn't get that, and we can be in a similar position. We need to understand. Do you feel that reality, brothers and sisters, that in so many arenas, so many topics, your mind actually needs to be changed, shifted, You need to be sanctified to think like Jesus. And I hope you'll see that in this passage and you'll be encouraged to move towards sanctification. And for that, I'll give you this verse, Romans 12, 2. It says, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't be conformed to the world. Let your mind be transformed by the Word of God, in the Word of God, seeing the big picture, studying the small details, and thinking more and more and more and more like Christ your Savior. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you so much again for your Word. And let us read it and meditate on these truths. And I pray, God, that you would help us all by the power of your spirit to take something away from this passage. And God, give us hearts to worship you as we see it. Give us hearts to obey you and to submit to you in whatever you show us, Lord. God, I pray that you make us doers of your word and not hearers only. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.